Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this new bonus series called the Media Business Podcast, brought to you by Media Business Insight, publishers of Broadcast Magazine and Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, editor of Screen International, and every month we'll be taking over the media podcast feed, sorry Ollie, to bring you an extra slice of business news from film, TV, advertising, and more. We'll look at the forces driving some of the big trends in the media sector with analysis from our editorial team and insights from key industry players. In the first of our media business podcasts, we're going to be looking at the business of the Oscars and award season as a whole. Not just the glamour of the red carpets and award ceremonies themselves, but what drives the award business? What does it mean for talent, producers and distributors? And what do you actually have to do to win an Oscar or a BAFTA? We'll also be sitting down with Elizabeth Carlson and Stephen Woolley from London-based independent production company Number no. 9 Films, who will be honoured at this year's BAFTA Film Awards ceremony for their outstanding contribution to British cinema. First, let's start with a discussion about the importance of award season for the industry. I'm joined by two colleagues from Screen International, Chief Film Critic Finn Halligan and Features Editor Charles Gant, and by Daniel Batsek, the Director of Film 4 and previously at Miramax, Cohen Media Group and National Geographic Films. Welcome to you all. So let's start by casting our eye over this year's award season. Finn, can you remind us of the big titles and how they fared at this year's Oscars and BAFTAs? Yes, indeed. It looks like uh, the race settles down into clear leaders and leading the pack in both cases is uh, Roma and The Favourite. So Roma with the Academy Awards, Roma's on 10 nominations, The Favourite's on 10 nominations. Over at the BAFTAs, The Favourite's on 12 nominations. Roma's on seven, a few less there. And then we're moving on down with the Academy Awards, Vice, Eight, Green Book, Five, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, Star is Born and Black Panther. And more or less repeated at the BAFTAs as well, with the exception of First Man that comes into the BAFTAs. And Charles, how has this particular award season evolved in terms of where it's ended up? I think there were obviously films that started the award season quite strongly and maybe have faded and uh, some other ones have picked up the picked up the sort of pace along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's always a roller coaster ride when you consider that the actual season begins with Venice and Toronto and ends with the Oscars. It's six months of the year, which is insane. And in that time, I would say A Star Is Born, you know, it was a real kind of front runner. People saw that movie, thought it's nailed on. We can just hand out the awards now. And I think, although it's picked up a lot of nominations, it's not really favourite in hardly any categories apart from song. And I think First Man also, which was a Venice film, you know, had a lot of heat behind it. I think that film has not really scored in the major categories. Claire Foy obviously picked up a BAFTA nomination for Supporting Actress, but that's kind of on the fade. Um, I think 
rising would definitely be Bohemian Rhapsody when that film first appeared. Uh, critics sort of were, put, you know, gave it short shrift. I think there was a lot of heat on Rami Malek's performance, but people thought that's all it's going to be. It's actually picked up serious nominations in major categories. I think Black Klansman has been a real sort of late surge movie. Um, it's done better across the nominations than people expected. And also Black Panther. You know, there was a lot of a lot of support in its corner, but people didn't necessarily think it was going to get that crucial Best Picture Oscar nomination, which it did. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Charles. I think it, it, what's interesting about this year, but seems to be interesting about every year, is just how much ebb and flow there is because there are so many different awards and festivals between, I mean, some would say between Cannes, which is in May, although that sort of faded a little bit as a as an Oscar prognosticator, but certainly those fall festivals. Um, but then you have things like the SAG Awards, the DGA Awards, the PGA Awards. Um, and you can get situations where um, directors get nominated, as, the, as happened this year, for DGA's, Director Guild Awards, and then don't get an Oscar nomination. So suddenly you go from a high point down to a low point. I think that happened certainly with Green Book and with The Star is Born, in fact, where both Bradley Cooper and Peter Farrelly got DGA nominations, but then were bumped out of the Oscar nominations. And then, um, as Charles was saying, Black Panther... Uh, due to its enormous box office, huge critical support, um, um, appeared to be a real front runner, then kind of dropped down. But then it just won the SAG Ensemble, which is usually a very good sign of, of Oscar strength because the SAG Screen Actors Guild have so many Academy voters. Suddenly, Black Panther has entered back into the conversation. So it's a, it's, it's a constantly um, changing situation, which will go right down to the wire, I think. Uh, and we have to mention two two film four productions, which have both scored uh, extremely strongly with the Oscar nominations and the BAFTA nominations, Cold War and The Favorite. And both of those, interesting to talk about the directors, both of the directors of those films, Pavel Palakowski for Cold War and Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, have arguably taken the slots that perhaps maybe would have otherwise gone to Bradley Cooper and, and Peter Farrelly for Green Book. I mean, I would say certainly, the, I mean, Pavel's nomination, incredibly deserved as it was, was a surprise. It's, it's pretty rare that a f the director of a foreign language film gets a uh, Best Director nomination from the Academy, given that the film was only nominated in the foreign language, it didn't get into the Best Picture. But yes, this year you've got two foreign language film directors in, in Cuaron and Polakowski and, and Yorgos Lanthimos for, um, for The Favourite. So, I mean, I think all incredibly well-deserved, but certainly not necessarily the way people were thinking those nominations would go. Do we think the increase in the international membership of the Academy that in the last couple of years, they've obviously put a lot of effort on that. Has that come into play at all in terms of the way the nominations have shaped up this year? Well, I sort of thought that with the two actresses appearing, the two actresses from Roma appearing in Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, as well as Quaron's own nomination and the film, it, it's a really big showing for a film like Roma. But is that because of the membership or because of the spend on promotion? Because I think there's been a huge spend. I mean, there has. And, and that and that is a, a key sort of factor in this year's um, uh, 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 both BAFTA and Academy is that Netflix are making a gigantic uh, attempt to... Um, uh, get themselves noticed, and uh, they have a wonderful film. I'm not arguing about that, but they've spent, uh, and people spend a lot of money on Academy campaigns. I mean, studios do. Netflix have outspent them by a considerable margin. Um, but alongside that, I, you know, I think, again, it's, 
uh, obviously because I, you know, I'm mainly responsible for independent films as opposed to studio films. I think it's fantastic that a film like The Favourite has been so celebrated, um, ha uh, has been so rewarded, as was the case for um, uh, Three Billboards last year. Uh, and in fact, the last couple of years, there's been, it hasn't only been box office that has been the sort of, um, the sort of most significant factor about a, a film's success in the awards. It used to be that box office was so crucial. Now I think there's almost a relativity about the box office. In other words, if a, if a film outperforms what people expect it to, then it gets that kind of glow that Academy members love to be part of because you always want to be part of a success, I think. Speaking of the, uh, the spend, I mean, I think the New York Times reported it that for Netflix it might even be as much as 25 or $30 million that they're spending on the Roma campaign. Just looking back at you know the recent kind of decades since you've been part of the film industry, is is that a figure that's just out of the out of the sort of stratosphere in compared to what it would have been back in the you know the nineties or two thousands? Is that? I mean, I think it's usual? certainly a lot. If that if that's a pure, I mean, it's it's never a pure academy campaign. It's always mixed up with. Um, I mean, normally it's mixed up with the release of the film. So you sort of add in the Academy campaign within the release of the film because the films tend to be released more or less concurrent with the awards season. Um, I mean, if that number reflected a pure Academy campaign, that would be at least double or more than double than, than what even a, a sort of significant studio would spend. But studios and independents spend, spend millions of dollars on Academy campaigns. Don't get me wrong. It's, uh, it's a very significant portion of, of uh, a marketing budget. And do, is that money well spent, Charles? I mean, is this a, are these outcomes that uh, the commercial outcomes that are potential for award season films worth the, the kind of the, the obviously the amount of money that gets spent on some of the campaigns? Well, it's, it's hard to know. You know how much impact the nominations and the wins actually have on the box office. But what I can certainly say is that if you look overall at the, particularly the English language movies that are coming out, that are kind of playing at art house cinemas, that are targeting independent cinema fans, now even more than was the case 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the award season is absolutely crucial to the considerations of the release of those films and therefore I hope I don't know if Daniel would agree with me, the kind of the green lighting of those films. I did a, a list of the top 20 in the UK box office, the top 20 sort of English language, sort of independent slash art house movies of last year. Ten of them came out in January and early February during the sort of BAFTA window. That's half, half of those films. And those, of course, were like, you know, best picture nominees like Darkest Hour, Three Billboards, The Post... The Shape of Water, Lady Bird, and uh, Phantom Thread. And the box office of all of those films, I think, got a significant boost from, from their association with awards. And particularly, I think, more the smaller title, like Phantom Thread. I think, you know, that, that film, um, if you look at the, you know, the, the trajectory of its American box office and the UK box office, its participation that was a little bit surprising in, in, the, um, in, you know, in, in terms of the the nominations it was getting, Best Picture nominations, absolutely transformed the commercial life of that movie. Yeah, that's so right. I mean, they took a massive bet on that. And I know I know, at the time, a lot of people doubted why was that film in there. I remember it didn't play any of the key festivals, so it didn't have any of the normal runway up into the awards uh, corridor. And so it was really a do-or-die strategy. It got deservedly again, in my opinion, Best Director and Best Picture nominations, and suddenly it had life. 
Um, um, but looking at our own um, three billboards um, last year, I think we did um, 40% of its U.S. take post-nominations. Um, and something like Moonlight, you know, made for under $2 million, grossed $65 million worldwide, you know, just based on all the noise that was great. I mean, obviously, it, it did, in fact, win Best Picture. But even without that, leading up to that, you know, A24 went from, you know, a very limited release to putting it on 1,500 screens in the U.S. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's examples every year uh, of films, especially in the independent sort of sphere, that that rely on that nomination period. The great thing about the nomination period is while you have nominations, you're a potential winner. <laughs> it's only when the awards actually come around that you go from that to being either a winner or a loser. So during that period of potential, you have the opportunity, three, four weeks, whatever it is, of um, you know having those ads with 10 nominations, including Best Picture, including Best Director, and everybody wants to be part of the conversation. And in order to do that, you have to see the films. Do you think the, as Charles suggested, the existence and importance of awards season factors now into calculations for whether a, whether a project gets greenlit or not? I mean, with the, you know, particularly in the prestige drama and high end, you know, indie films that obviously tended to score well with, um, with, with awards voters. I mean, I think you've got to be careful not to sort of jump too far ahead of yourself, because when you're making decisions about uh, um, a, a film, a film production and the investment you're going to make in it, um, there are so many things that come into that uh, and into that sort of information gathering and so many creative decisions, so many financial decisions. But certainly, um, what you know, we certainly at Film 4, we, we're very keen to have films that get that sort of awards attention. So uh, you try to work with filmmakers who have a track record in that area. You try to deal with subject matter that um, has the potential to appeal to a quality cinema going audience, which, you know, more often than not does include many Academy members. But I think it would be wrong to suggest that we sort of put a note into the diary um, the first day that we greenlight the movie and sort of think, oh, great, okay, let's make sure we rent our tux on that day. <laughs> <laughs> but would it, would it have any input into maybe the budget level that the film is made at? Would that, would that, would that factor in it at all? I think that's, very, that's a very difficult one to, 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 again, to sort of forecast because although we've given examples of incredible, successful, uh, um, you know, sort of academy campaigns and the way that those have impacted on the revenue for particular films, there are also many, many, many films that fall by the wayside, um, some of which we've mentioned that, that, you know, that sort of start off like, let's say, First Man, that start off with a huge kind of trumpeting at a festival and everybody at that point, I think, would have bet on it going all the way. And it didn't. So I think, again, you, you just got to be very careful not to assume that you have the goods until until it really is out there playing to um, to audiences and to critics. On the, on the other hand, I mean, with First Man, I would say that Universal, uh, who had a movie in the, in the UK, I mean, they really hedged their bets with their release date because if you do go in that October or November slot, it is less competitive. And it's not, you know, I mean, they've, 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 they kind of got their box office ahead of them not securing their nominations, which is a tactic that, you know, can, can be used. Um, you know, yeah, but I think sometimes you, exactly, you, 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 you have other uh, kind of um, box office uh, you have other potential at the box office that doesn't rely on wars. I mean, Black Klansman mm -hmm. as well went way ahead of the 
of the sort of the so-called Oscar corridor because because it was a film that was going to make a noise anyway, um, and so it did, and it did very well. Uh, and then then the sort of what's happened post nominations and stuff is sort of icing on the cake rather than the cake itself. Although Black Klansman's back in U.S. cinemas off 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 the back of these awards, so you know it's going to pick up a few extra million, I think, uh, from that re-release. Yeah, and I think some are sort of saying Spike might be uh, potentially uh, kind of, you know, have a little bit of an edge in the best direct category for Oscars just because he's this is first nomination. He's, you know, he's got such a history of filmmaking behind him and he's never been recognized in this way before by the Academy. Yeah, I think, listen, you can you can make an argument for every one of those um, best director nominees. They all have a story to tell and their studios are telling those stories loud and clear. <laughs> Daniel, I mean, have you since you entered the film industry, would you say that the attention paid to award season has changed significantly or the mechanics of how it works? Is is anything significantly different from the way it was back in the nineties when obviously Harvey Weinstein was was in his heyday and or when you were at Miramax? Has there been any, been any big changes or is it kind of business as was back then. No, I mean, I think, you know, um, uh, the dreaded Harvey Weinstein is largely responsible for um, the fact that this has become such a high profile and heated and debated and and money spent on uh, complicated um, uh, operation. Uh, You know, I mean, I think he, he and, and Miramax were the vanguard for this entire situation, um, which which ultimately has benefited many films that would not have received anything like this sort of recognition or awareness or box office and many filmmakers also. So, um, uh, you know, and I think going right back, you know, to films like My Left Foot and The Crying Game um, and Pulp Fiction and so many of those early Miramax films, um, which, you know, massive campaigns of mainly publicity in those days were orchestrated by Harvey um, and incredibly successful, incredibly successful. So I think that's sort of the beginning of this new age where, I mean, obviously the Oscars have been going for, for many, many years, but but I don't think they were anywhere nearly as talked about in public life as they are now. Now everybody has an opinion on them um, and there is so much of an industry around them in terms of the blogs and the prognosticators and the Las Vegas odds. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a whole industry unto itself. And as, as Charles says, I mean, it lasts a good six months um, and um, that's half the year. When Harvey was Pulp Fiction, that was starting at Cannes, so the corridor was even longer than it seems to have contracted and sort of intensified over the last couple of years to between Venice and really the actual day. So you had the six months of intensity. Well, I think exactly to that point, I mean, I think Cannes, partly due to its um, specific selection policy, as you know, it, it refuses to play Netflix films, and partly because... I think studios were just finding it just too difficult to sustain a campaign from May until the following March. So I think that has sort of almost, that has reduced Cannes. But Cannes, as you say, used to be uh, a a vital part, especially for for, uh, Miramax films, of starting that ball rolling and throwing up that flair that a film was to be considered very seriously, especially if, as in Pulp Fiction's case, you won the Palme d'Or. I did a number of interviews with talent for Screen International's Awards Weeklies, and talk to um, some of the actors and filmmakers, and they were all saying the same thing. Kira Knightley, who we interviewed for Colette, 
obviously didn't ultimately uh, nominations didn't really ensue. But she she was just saying it's crazy. Like when I did uh, Pride and Prejudice, I did about two or three Q and As, and uh, you know a couple of covers, and even a few years ago into the imitation game, it's not as insane as it is now. I spoke to the Green Book filmmakers. Pete Farrelly, of course, has never been part of this whole thing. He just could not believe his schedule. He was like getting out his phone going, I'm flying here and then I'm doing this and then they're greeting me at the airport with a, tux- with a jacket and I'm doing that. And then I'm go- he just said, what is going on? He was absolutely amazed at know, what they I were expecting that, that, him that, to you do. Know, you sort of... You know, if you're part of this industry, then you have to pay your dues, etc. But I must say, when one one has been on the road with one of those these campaigns, like for ex- for example, um, you know, when I did No Country for Old Men, you see what your um, filmmakers have to go through in terms of they made the film, you know, six months prior to that. They done all sorts of other things, and suddenly they basically have to shut down their lives for six months while they go as Charles mentioned, to Q&As around about the place, to various glad-handing events, to all sorts of award ceremonies. I remember with No Country, because, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen are not exactly the Mr. <laughs> and Mr. Party person. Um, and eventually after, you know, and, and it won everything, it has to be said. Um, and at one point, they literally, everybody from the film refused to attend and it was in fact the broadcast critics circle award ceremony and so suddenly the finger was pointed at me that if we won I would have to go and collect this award Um, and it was televised as well sure enough it did win and I just remember so well going up to collect the award pretty nerve-wracking as it was looking out at a sea of incredibly famous faces all looking at me basically saying who the hell are you um, as I collected whatever it was this little glass jug uh, for no country but I mean it just it is an incredibly long haul um, and it's sort of it requires a permanent sort of um, smile on your face if you're if you're any of these actors or actresses or directors because if you put a foot wrong everybody knows about it as a sort of key backer of uh, films like Three Billboards and The Favourite, would you be involved in any of the strategizing around categories? I guess clearly what I'm thinking about is perhaps the favourite best actress split, you know, in the in the fact that it was decided that Olivia Coleman would be put into the best actress category, whereas Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone would go into best supporting actress, even though all three actresses probably had roughly about, about the same amount of screen time. Is that any anything that you're privy to in terms of conversations? or? I mean, there certainly are conversations about that. They tend to sort of naturally evolve as to what is the best way to go about it. I mean, in a way, sometimes you really, you kind of don't want to have um, too many choices to make. Uh, as it happened, it kind of worked out that Olivia would be best, you know, would be in the best actress category. That seemed like the natural thing, and that worked perfectly. And then both Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz got best supporting actresses, which again, sometimes you can sort of feel is seems like an embarrassment of riches and can be complicated if you feel like suddenly the vote may be split between them and allow somebody else to go in to get in. But I hope that's not going to happen. Let's talk about negative campaigning because that has obviously. Um come into play many times in previous years and of course this year particularly with the green uh, with green book it's been uh, been a factor well i think the question is is it negative i mean is it negative campaigning or or are kind of embarrassing details organically emerging um or are you know awards campaigners you know pushing journalists in the direction of 
potentially interesting negative stories. But it's always been around. It's just that now, because information is available in so many in such a more thorough manner and because it's so available to all, it feels like a tiny little murmur um, can create huge waves. And I think, you know, Green Book is a good, good example of that. But I mean, going back to, uh, you know, the Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan controversy, there was all sorts of talk of, of, um, uh, of you know, sort of mysterious phone calls being made, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, yeah, there's always... Listen, it's it's a it's a very hard fought campaign, and there are a huge number of people, consultants upon consultants become upon consultants, and not all of them follow the rule book, um, uh, you know, by every line of that. And uh, and certainly, um, it's it's certainly true to say that every year there are examples of uh, you know of negative campaigning of one sort of sort or another, um, and I'm sure that will continue. I think it's interesting that 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 movie makers are being held to such high moral standards, which are beyond the moral standards of the, of the, the president of the United States at the moment. But it's, it, it sort of seems, it seems quite tough on the people involved that they have well, to have a very, such a past. That's, that's a very so low key. bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, listen, I think that's just, that's just the way, that's just the way it goes. It's become, it's become so high profile. Um, it, it's, as we've discussed before, it's responsible for such, uh, a large amount of money, you know, those campaigns and whether you win them or not, that it, it's bound to result in um, in people digging up um, old, you know, past misdemeanors and trying to use them against the filmmakers uh, uh, of today. I thought it was interesting, though, that I think the Producers Guild really made a statement by giving their award to Green Book. They were just saying, this is just noise. We don't care about this stuff. Actually, we think it's wrong that people are doing this, and we're going to give give the prize to Green Book anyway. So, one final question: uh, Oscar briefly mooted this popular film category uh, last summer before hastily uh, retracting it. Um, and in fact, this year's Best Picture nominations do reflect a little bit of a you know they have some commercial success stories uh, amongst the the number, including Black Panther and Bohemian Rhapsody, which we have which we have talked about. Would you have welcomed a popular film category uh, back in the day, Daniel, back at BVI or back, you know, any earlier in your career? Or do you think that's a uh, something that you don't think is particularly necessary in today's day and age? I mean, I think it's unnecessary. I think, you know, that 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 you get a pretty good representation, as, as this year's nominations have demonstrated, of of quality and quantity. Um uh, and I don't see any reason to mess with it. Uh, um, I think the Academy have enough to focus on, you know, like, for example, finding a host for the show without uh, wor- worrying about creating extra categories. I think that this year they have um, the way that the, the cookie has crumbled has been actually been great for having a set of, of awards films that are engaging audiences. So you've not only got Black Panther, you've also got films like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and The Star is Born, which are, you know, genuinely, genuinely popular films, as well as, you know, a crowd-pleaser type movie like Green Book, you know, which maybe doesn't have the box office, but but does have um, sort of broad appeal. And in the UK, you know, the movie that is really packing in the houses is The Favourite, you know, which is, has gone way beyond, I think, what anyone would have probably anticipated. Well, exactly, and I, and I think... The idea of popularity is such a sort of subjective thing. 
The Favourite is a popular, populist film. I mean, it's done only £14 million at the UK box office. That means a very wide audience has seen it. And it didn't need to be termed a popular film in order for that to happen. It's just an incredibly entertaining and very high-quality film. And that's, that's what it takes. Charles, Finn, and Daniel, thank you very much. Daniel, very good luck with the uh, upcoming ceremonies for Cold War and The Favourite. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. At this year's BAFTA Film Awards ceremony, Elizabeth Carlson and Stephen Woolley will be honored with the Outstanding Contribution to British Cinema Award. The producers of such acclaimed features as Carol, Maiden Dagenham and Colette, Elizabeth and Stephen sat down with Screen International's senior reporter Tom Grader to discuss what it's like to navigate the award season trail. It's a journey that goes all the way back to 1992's The Crying Game, which changed the game for independent films being recognized by the Oscars. Here's Stephen. There was a little bit of worry from all of us about how the film would fare because um, the UK released The Crying Game, although it was, it was okay, but it wasn't spectacular. And the UK response to the film was okay, but it wasn't spectacular. Um, so when we had our first screening at Telluride Film Festival, Tom McCarthy from, from Variety said, the producer, Stephen Woolley, got up say, on stage and said, don't give away the twist. And I thought, right, I won't give away the twist, but wrote, but he thought the film was there's something more than that. So when it happened, he was quite shocked. And I think people were shocked in Telluride and they wrote incredibly well about the film. And um, it was like sending a message to Neil, I think it's okay. You know, we'd gone off like like we'd gone off the explorers, and Liz and I had kind of tested the water, and people really, really loved the film. And we got very heavily involved because we wanted that twist to be something we we I'd originally tried in the UK and it worked in the UK. We'd given our press release saying, "Please don't give away the twist." But um, there's a huge amount of credit given to Miramax for the publicity and the marketing of the film. And I, and I have to say, they did deserve a lot of it because they worked really hard on it. But they didn't have a poster for the film when we released it. 
there were no posters outside the cinemas. Neil and I were in New York um, trying to see how the first audiences would respond and there was actually no posters um, because they couldn't work out how to sell the movie. They just didn't know quite... They didn't like the title because they bought a film called The Soldier's Wife. They didn't like the title of Crying Game. So they had to come up with a strap line for the poster, uh, which they did very well, which was uh, the strap line was play it at your own risk because they wanted that thriller aspect in there and they felt The Crying Game made it sound like a melodrama. So like a lot of British and European films, it was supported by the critics. The critics went overboard for The Crying Game. They weren't just that first review in Variety from Tom McCarthy. It wasn't a good review. It wasn't a great review. It was stupendous. It was ridiculously fulsome, um, praising every single element. And that's kind of sort of what European and British films needed at that point. So the campaign, whilst it was very good, um, was based on those two things. The twist, let's keep the secret of the crying game, and that whole shh the secret it was really 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 just constantly drummed home and um the critics just loving the film and those awards getting nominated and all those things and obviously it wasn't your first success but um what do you think uh, having such a significant impact on the awards that year what did that do for your careers did that move things forward did that well, the reason that we travelled to work every morning with our own chauffeur driven Rolls-Royce and have our own private fleet of private jets um, is because of the success of The Crying Game. No, of course it made a huge impact on us, um, on both of us, really, and allowed uh, me to go into to make a film with Warner Brothers, which three films after that with the studios with Neil. And... Um, we were able to, you know, we were able to get set up some of our kind of projects that we wanted to make. You know, Elizabeth made Little Voice not long after that. So, yeah, it, did, it made a, it was a huge difference to us. And I mean, I think awards can do that, you know. But you're, but as producers, you're only good as your next movie. I mean, it's very hard to um, make unique or original movies, which is what we try and do, um, and to start again you know we generally start again we don't continue on that franchise upward curve we generally like snakes and ladders we generally get to like number you know 98 and then hit a ladder and go back to one again so we we, we generally go in a circle yeah we don't and well i think it's the nature of of what we do in the film business that we like to work with good different voices and and on the good unique projects um but i i think that for me one of the most memorable things about screening the film in telluride was the response of the audience and back then i mean 26 years ago it was 26 getting on for 27 probably it was a very small festival and the audience were so struck by that film in very deep, profound ways. And I remember in particular a couple who were, you know, middle-aged, late middle-aged couple, perhaps retired to that area, quite cultured, who came up and started talking about the experience of their child. And really what the film did for people is I think they found it entertaining, 
but also that it presented um, a trans character and a character who could love and be loved and presented a scenario where Stephen Ray's character assumed that he was entering a relationship with a woman and then you have this moment and it really put right in the center this question of why discriminate um, against people suddenly because you find out they have a physical member or they are, you know, it just, it, it really put that question right there and it really captured people and people whose children had been, you know, the victims of kind of abuse and discrimination. And remember the film really came on the back of you had Reagan and you had Bush and you had all of the legislation that was being introduced against homosexuality and, you know, that you had the, the political groups like ACT UP and Grand Fury who were demanding that the government pay attention to people who were dying in thousands from AIDS. And, and this film really came just after and in the midst of all of that going on. And I think that was also very, very important that it registered in the way that films, you know, like Philadelphia Registered or Kiss of the Spider Woman or... Um, and that was definitely a part of it. And it was just very, very moving to see how deeply affected people were by that movie and said, thank you so much. Cool. Um, let's flash forward to 2019. Let me take the opportunity to congratulate you on uh, the BAFTA that you will receive this year for outstanding contribution to British cinema. Um, what does What does that mean to you as independent producers? It's extraordinary. It was almost impossible to process reading the first line of the letter um, because, you know, you just get your head down and, and work. Um, and despite what people say, oh, you deserved it, it was overdue, or, it, it, you know, you don't expect recognition of this level to happen. And it was extremely rewarding and very gratifying and, and, and very humbling and just a wonderful thing I think we've worked away and you've had your ups and you've had your downs and it's just all about the work and films and passion and to be recognized by a body like the British Academy is for your output is tremendous really tremendous you know we 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 represent I suppose um quite a large portion of the business here as independent producers and um obviously we like to think this award isn't is although it is for us personally, um, and they are giving us one each, which was very important that I established. I established that because you know you never know what happens. We've only been together for a, a while, um, so yeah. No, all joking aside, it really is a, an award for all independent producers and everything that everyone struggles for. And and we happen to have been around for a very long time, and we do like to take risks, and we do like to work with. Um, filmmakers who are also prepared to take risks and you know sometimes that that is does go on you know sometimes your films don't get the nominations you want or sometimes you feel like you're sort of screaming in the dark and um it is lovely for someone to turn around and say oh you know here's an acknowledgement you do exist and so do all the other people like you so um we're very very thrilled by this um and and oddly you know, it is a it is a celebration for us. We want it to be a celebration. It's fun. It's something that um, you know has never happened to us. We've never gone to BAFTA Awards knowing we've won. 
so this takes a lot of the nerves out of the evening. Um, you know, when Elizabeth uh, and I were nominated for Carol, we got nine nominations and didn't win one, which means there were nine lots of different people who were slightly disappointed. Uh, end of the affair, we got ten nominations and only won one award. So we don't have to contend with all those other people. Because <laughs> as producers, you don't expect it in a way. Uh, we're, I'm always thinking, well, if it comes, that's nice, but we've been no nominated. How great is that, you know? Um, I remember with Mona Lisa all those years ago, Bob always won. So we would we'd go to all the f all the award ceremonies, all the festivals, with, you know, Kathy Tyson and Neil and everybody involved in the film, and Bob would win, which was brilliant for Bob, but always a bit like, oh, it's a shame Kathy didn't get something. Oh, Kathy's so great in the movie, or oh, Neil, the best screenplay or something. You know what I mean? You'd always think, and no, Bob won. There you go. There's your award, Bob. And I think, you know, for us, it, it's a bit of a relief to go along to BAFTA and not, and not have to face that disappointment. Um, the downside is, of course, that we're going to have to say something profound and, and fairly um, wise um, and at a very short in a very short speech, because otherwise we'll be cut out and we won't be shown on the telly. Um, so I, I think that's that's a bit of a that's that's the only thing that's a bit nerve-wracking is to have known for so long. But um, they are genuinely, as I say, all joking aside, we are um, pretty astonished and pretty, um, you know, we feel very honoured. I feel it's also because film is about collaboration. It's completely a collaborative form of business and art, and we have had people that we've worked with for three decades and you feel their joy. And so you're definitely sharing this recognition and the award with all of those people that you've collaborated with because they make you look much better than you probably are. You're only as good as the people around you. And I think that's a really important thing to hold on to. But I also feel that winning, do I say winning? Not we haven't won this. We've been recognized with this award. In this year, I feel very excited by and moved by because when you look in particular at the list of the best foreign films and you see the range of those stories and you see all of those things that I think we have been, if you say fighting for, but things that have driven us is telling stories about people who were typically, you know, outsiders on the margins. And you see, you know, the first film that I worked on, Parting Glances, and then with Stephen's work, Mona Lisa, and and then two of us with The Crying Game and on, you know, Carol and all the films that we've told. And you look at the films this year, you know, like Roma and Cold War and Capernaum and all of them, and I think there's such brilliant brilliant films and I think they really show in they show the themes and the individuals and the causes and the artistry that really have driven us as filmmakers and it feels such an honor when I I look at those films that have been nominated and the filmmakers behind them and think gosh we're here this year with that group it's great it's a great feeling how do you think the award season has changed over the years? Has it become more influential on independent filmmaking? Yeah, I think it has become more influential. Um, an awful lot of the awards are driven by publicity and spend and money. 
Um, that's really sad. Um, I'm not saying that they haven't always been. Um, but as we move into an age where newspapers and print doesn't mean as much, um, you know, people think of new ways of of getting people's attention. Um, I mean, you know, we get sent DVDs of films and just without mentioning any titles, you know, I think one particular film we got sent eight DVDs of. And uh, that's a title that did get quite highly prominent recognition. So it has changed, yeah. I mean, the campaigning is now more sophisticated. Yeah, I think for me the difference of the campaign during the time of The Crying Game and Little Voice was very, very different from the experience on Carol. Um, the machine is so much bigger and so much more demanding and so many people are involved in it and there's a level of sophistication and strategizing. I mean, it just felt like it was a sort of um, presidential campaign in many ways. And it is quite grueling and demanding for the filmmakers. I mean, there's a lot of travel and I'm, you know, not complaining about it, but it was, I think Olivia Coleman said something in the Guardian not long ago. It really is very grueling and you sort of people, you have to just block out six months. And sometimes the students say, well, you just have to move to LA for six months. Um, and I think it's hard, can be hard on creative people also because you feel sometimes that you're in an environment where you're pitted against each other. Fortunately, I found, I mean, in the year of Carol that, you know, Ed Guiney, who's a wonderful person and a great friend, he was there with um, Room and all of the um, the team of Spotlight were there. And actually, we all just became really friendly and would joke about it and would be at the next airport luggage rack holding our bags off for the next session and the next panel. And it was a lot of fun, but it was demanding. And I think that it's also sort of affected distribution a bit because for independent films to get out there, distributors feel you need to have nominations and awards behind them to give them a real shot of breaking out. And so consequently, there's this log jam of films that are released around this time, which is not really that healthy because some of them just are not going to fare in that lion's den of lobbying and competition. And some organizations do have many, many more resources to put behind that program. So I think hopefully it will sort of self-correct and people will think, you know what, let's just take that film out. I mean, films now, independent films, March is a good year. So you see some films, they go, you know what, let's just not even be a part of that. It's just too expensive, it's too crazy, and we're not going to rise above it. And if we don't, we'll just left behind. We'll be left behind. We won't be able to compete. So distributors are moving them out and thinking we'll put them in the spring. But there is a lot of pressure that you feel of you have to make a film that is going to be able to compete in that race so that distributors fear they have more of a chance to get the box office returns on that independent film but it's much much bigger i mean it has changed beyond recognition from when we first did it years ago there were reports recently that netflix had spent up to 25 million dollars on its awards campaign for roma um what do you make of that well that's what i was saying i mean phenomenal amounts of money are spent because you know, it's discussed at a corporate level and it's perhaps has become increasingly aligned with business plans and what those 
awards due to shareholder prices and what the potential is for a business which is subscription-based um, and how you bring more subscribers on. But, you know, there is often an argument that economic imperatives are the best way of breaking down boundaries that exist around race and gender and, you know, they women were brought into the workforce because the machine needs to keep going and needs to be. And so, you know, the fact that a film like Roma, which is at the center are women and, you know, the story of a housekeeper, a mother, um, those types of characters are Mexican. It's not in the English language. Wouldn't really be seen in a, mass saturated level in the way that you have now with the Netflix campaign and you know in the political climate that we are in I would say that that is a very fine thing I mean not only are they celebrating a film which really is a cinematic masterpiece um, but it also is celebrating a story which I really do believe cinema is able in some ways to change the cultural and socio-political landscape. So, yes, they are spending that money, and there's many different reasons why, but I think there are many mm. positives, as there are, you could say, negatives. And I think that Carlos Coron's comment, which I know he was quite spiky about what Netflix distribution, whatever, however that happens as a streaming platform, meant for that film, was very, very apt, and you needed to listen to it. You see, I think that it's very easy to confuse content with impact and the gamble that Netflix have made in investing that money. And I have no idea if they invested two bob or 25 million, but they, I'm, sure, I'm sure that it's closer to 25 million than it is to two bob. Um, but whatever that investment is, is it, it, it's the argument and this is what can, why can ban Netflix. The argument is fairly plain for all to see, which is that if you go, if you put huge amounts of money into a movie like Roma, um, and it's, um, you know, it, it's won all my Oscars, so there's no question in my mind of all the films I've seen, Roma is probably the one I most love. Um, however, if that does win the Oscars as a Netflix film and that the only way of seeing that film really is on Netflix because it won't didn't get proper wide distribution. It got some distribution. Um, and if it's because they put all that money into it, it does send a signal. And it's not about the content of that film. It's about what the future is for cinema and how that future could be interpreted as well, that's what wins Oscars, you know. What does the Oscars then become? That's all. It's not because I'm not making an opinion about it. I'm just laying out what we're seeing. We are question about how it's changed. You know, it, you can compare it to say, you know, other movies um, which have which have have been astonishingly revitalized by or um, uh, you know been thrust into the mainstream by the Oscars, you know, films like Broke Mountain, for instance, you know, which maybe nobody would have seen without the Oscars. 
and you can list all of these great movies that the Oscars have given a big lift up to and all these great filmmakers and directors and actors and writers. But this is a different phenomenon. This isn't about a Spanish-language film, black and white, winning an Oscar or being nominated. It's about a big company like Netflix coming in and doing something that is, a, is different, and different from Manchester by the Sea with Amazon. This is slightly different. This is a different level. So that is a discussion that has to take place at some point. How much impact do you think that Roma's prominence this year could potentially have on the success of foreign language cinema, which has struggled in markets such as yeah. the US and the UK in recent years? Yeah, I mean, French cinema, it's sort of has dropped. Uh, you know, things feed off each other, and there's been quite a bit of conversation at the moment how subtitled foreign language television shows are travelling without any problem. And if the demographic of watching those shows is quite young, then you're creating a scenario where those young consumers, that's as they're called now, of these stories, don't have a problem with subtitling. And I think that creates a foundation of acceptance which will cross over into cinema. And I think that the success of Roma will definitely raise I think the profile of foreign films and hopefully create deeper and wider interests particularly in a younger demographic I think that's where the challenges are things always change I mean that's the one thing we've learned certainly I've learned in 40 years is that change 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 is always changing every year there's something some new desire still coming around the corner whether it's you know when I first started on in the early 80s it was you know VHS and Pow and Beta and who was going to win VHS one? Oh my God, it's going to sweep the country and nobody's going to go to the cinema anymore. It didn't happen. People went to cinema more. In fact. And then, of course, there was satellite. Sky's come in and Sky's going to have all these movie channels. We've got 100 movie channels. Who's going to go and watch films? And there's 100 movies you can watch every night. And no, it didn't happen. And then DVDs came in. DVDs, these lovely little things. You can take them anywhere. You can show them anywhere. As it, And it goes on. And now we have Amazon and Netflix and it's all going to be terrible on Hulu and we're all going to be watching like box sets for the rest of our lives and nobody's going to go to the cinema. Well, it may, it, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the Armageddon that we've all been talking about, and I, but I doubt it. So we know things will not necessarily remain the same and things will change. So we're very optimistic and things will always come round to great stories and we're always fighting for those great voices um, and the quiet voices and the voices that no one hears. However, there is, gnawing at the back of my head, this idea of how now it's about the economic um, necessity to sustain cinemas and to sustain exhibition and to sustain uh, against great forces out there, which is, you know, property development and all those things. And, you know, how do you afford to have your cinema and how can you afford to keep that going? And... Um, you know, we want to help support the idea of independence, of true independence. And we want to support the idea that the true independence can still sustain themselves with the upside of the hits and the downside of the misses. Because we've got to make a lot of misses to make a few hits. So the worry is that those misses, the hungers that Steve McQueen made or the 
uh, Terence Davis films, or in my case, you know, going way back the Derek Jarmans and the Ken Loaches, and you know, they don't they didn't walk straight into film festivals and take all the awards. They had to make a lot of movies before they got there. Yeah, it, it, we need to make the flops before we can make the hits. I mean, Sandy Powell has got another two Oscar nominations, but she's her career started with Derek Jarman, you know, and and Sally Potter and. So it goes. We need to make the flops. Mm. So we need to have an industry that can sustain that. And I'm not just talking about the BFI. I'm talking about a, an independent industry. So um, that's the fear. That's the worry. Yeah. That's our show for today. My thanks to Daniel Batsek, Stephen Woolley, Elizabeth Carlson, and my colleagues, Finn, Charles, and Tom. And of course, thank you for joining us. Ali Man will return with the regular media podcast next week, and we'll be back in a few weeks' time when my colleagues from Broadcast Magazine take over to discuss some of the biggest trends in the global TV market. To get that episode, make sure you subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a whole load of podcast apps. Just search for Media Business Podcast and hit subscribe. And please head over to ScreenDaily.com for our daily news, reviews, and features coverage of the international film market. I'm Matt Mueller. Bye for now. Thank you.